Hi, this is uh, Mike Edelhart, and I'm here with another edition of Inception, our podcast about beginnings, the beginnings of companies, of careers, of ideas, science, and sometimes even a little peek into the future. And I'm here today with one of our really earlier uh, investments, uh, uh, Søren Markosian of uh, Epic, and uh, great to see you. Yeah, good to see you as well, Mike, and thanks for having me here. Oh, it's, uh, we were just talking. Uh, you know, we're sitting here in this nice conference room on the second floor of the nice office in Redwood City with all these people here. And uh, I remember the first time we met, I think it might even have been just the two of you, maybe four folks, and you had just come out of a Crowdstar, you know, a, a gaming background. Uh, and so things have changed uh, a lot. Yeah, things have changed definitely uh, dramatically in the last uh, five years since we've started this company. So uh, let's talk about that some. We often say at the funds that uh, startup success is the result of not so much the ideas you have on day one and the 10 slides that shook the world, but uh, comes about because of the change that the companies go through and they actually you know, f- interact with the real world. And... Uh, uh, all the complex, changeable people out there. Um, what about for you? So let's go all the way back. So there you were. Uh, uh, maybe share a little bit about your background, Armenian game engineer mm-hmm. kind of thing. How'd you come to be doing uh, uh, what you're doing now? Books, teachers, all that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to uh, give you uh, the kind of a little bit of an overview of where I, uh, how I ended up here. Um, I've been always passionate about creating things. Just creating anything is, is, is interesting to me. And uh, this is actually my sixth startup that I'm doing. Uh, I've been a founder of multiple other companies and uh, most notably uh, my last company was a gaming company called Crowdstar, which did really well. And creating games is definitely a very fun uh, process and a very, very fun experience. It's a very creative also uh, experience. Uh, but at some point I became a parent and I had kids. And I was watching my kids use the iPad, and I was very uh, much, um, you know, became very passionate about doing something for children. Uh, it was my personal passion. It was uh, also a matter of solving my personal pain point, where I saw kids using the iPad and yet not discovering, not finding something that's appropriate for them. As many of you know, you know, there's YouTube out there, which is not appropriate for children. There are a lot of games out there that are free to play, but they, yet they try to monetize you, and children fall for this kind of a in-app purchases where they end up spending money without even knowing they're spending money. And I really wanted to create something a lot more meaningful, something where you don't have to ask for money from your customers because you build a product that customers want and they give you the money. They really want to use it for a very long time because it gives them so much value. And this is what Epic is for me. It is that kind of a passion and purpose and i would like to define personally what i like to define as a, as a success and the reason for success are the three p's passion purpose and persistence very often passion is a thing that nobody else shares with you uh, that's why you need to be persistent you have to believe in your passion for a very long time and you have to uh, do it for a long time until it works or doesn't um, and a purpose, you really need to know the purpose of this because you need to build a team. And then to build a team around you, you need to communicate uh, what you're trying to achieve and you need to rally people about your purpose and obviously your mission as a company. So um, when we first 
met and we first invested, uh, this was about reading and mm -hmm. sort of structured reading on tablets. And then it was tablets and mobile, uh, uh, managerial moms and dads can mm -hmm. sort of tell whether junior is reading at grade level and all that kind of thing. Um, and we thought that was an idea with merit, but the company really took off when you figured out how to get the teachers involved, which we didn't expect at all. So mm -hmm. where did that come from? How did you come to that realization? And it probably would be worth describing for folks that don't know just how that mm -hmm. works. That's one way you get the product to the parents in the first place. Yeah. So let me describe our, our model, um, our business model as a company. So we started out as basically a subscription service for children's ebooks, where I felt strongly that kids need to be in control and kids need to have access to all of the content. Where traditionally, uh, when a child wants to read a book, a parent has to buy this book. And so every time a child wants to read a new book, parent has to go and buy the book. And it's a very uh, clunky experience and it's uh, also not very cheap for the parent. And uh, also many times parent buys the book and kids just don't read it and don't like it. And you never know what kids will like or not. And so, so I felt like um, um, offering a service under subscription where parents pay once and kids have full control over the experience of access to all this great content, with great books, that would be probably the ideal scenario for children. And obviously you have to design a product that's uh, built around a fun and engagement for children, not for adults. Um, and so that was the initial premise of this idea. We launched the initial product just as I described, and then we suddenly discovered that teachers started adopting it at a large scale. And we were charging a subscription fee, monthly subscription fee, uh, but there was so much interest and love from teachers that I thought, how about we do something unusual, something that's kind of counterintuitive. Instead of charging teachers, charging people actually want to pay for this product, how about we make it free for them? Because at the early stage of a startup, your biggest priority is to grow, get traction, get product market fit, and grow, grow, grow. And by making it free to teachers, we could grow. That was the idea. Um, and we all know that teachers don't necessarily have the most, um, the highest budgets and most money. And so by making it free, we suddenly opened up the uh, ability for any teacher to sign up. And so from there, we became a very large um, product used in, in, in classrooms and schools. So we used in over well over 90% of all U.S. elementary schools thanks to a product that is just perfect for the classroom because we offer so much content that teachers can take and use for any topic, any subject they teach, not just for reading, but you know they teach biology, they can just put, pull some content from Epic because we have that content. And then the product became basically endorsed by teachers. It was a product that uh, parents saw as, okay, the Epic, teachers use Epic, that means it's, it's something that's educational, good for my child. I'm going to subscribe to it. And so parents subscribe and pay the subscription, but teachers get to use it for free. And then kids also use it for free in the classroom and they can come home and tell the parents and parents subscribe. And obviously every parent wants the best for their child. They want the, the best education for their child. And the value proposition of Epic is just a perfect right fit. And I would say we are uh, a company, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about pivoting. You know, you start a company and then you find out this doesn't work and you pivot. We actually have not pivoted. We only expanded, we grew, but we built on the original idea and we expanded to become a much larger service, but the premise and the idea is has remained the same. 
So you just mentioned right before we got started that you're moving into being a publisher, being a packager, being a creator of children's books, which was not even... Well, we talked about it a little. You said, I remember in our first meeting, you said, if you couldn't get the publishers to go along with you, you'd have no choice but to have to create some stuff so that there were things in the system that parents could read. Uh, but now it sounds like you're on full circle. We are, and I always wanted to create uh, content. And as I mentioned, I love creating things. You know, Now that we've created a company, we can create content. Why not? It's fun. We work with um, very well-known and uh, best-selling authors and illustrators, and we know what kids like. We just see the consumption patterns on the platform. We know what kids like, and based on our understanding of different age groups and different uh, interest groups, we can create content that they like. And so, so far, the content we've created has been tremendously successful. You know, kids have read millions and millions of books that we have created. Um, and and so it's just a natural kind of evolution of a, a, any content platform. Uh, we are not, I wouldn't say, you know, publishing is our is our main business. We want to be a platform that delivers frictionless access to all the great content. So we will always have content from, um, as much content as we get from anybody. But I think complementing it with our content is just a, a natural thing to do. So uh, not only have you guys been impressive as... Uh... Uh, product entrepreneurs. I've used you a number of times as an example of a team that's done a really good job of understanding the fundamentals, recognizing the importance of distribution, getting the teachers involved and all that. But you've been a dab hand at raising money and particularly from unusual sources. So um, you've gotten uh, strategics in early, you've got CAA. Um, it'd be great to talk about that a little bit. Is that a strategy that you're going for non-traditional uh, funding sources? Is it just who you happen to know? Or are you targeting them? Or is it uh, because you think this particular platform is attractive? Um, no, it was actually, I have to admit, it was not a specific strategy we have followed. Um, I can say that early on, the Series A round was the most difficult round to raise. And the reason being is that because in Silicon Valley, uh, people, the VCs, really don't believe in kids' businesses and in content businesses. And the, the, the way they see it, there have been never really a big success in children's space, in children's technology space. So there's no real track record to reference. And content in general is perceived as a very expensive uh, investment in order to make a, a, a content business work and scale it. And so just this, this idea of building a children and content combined was a very, seemed like a very bad idea to a lot of people. Even though every um, investor who was a parent would totally say this is something I would use. It's, it's, it's a great idea. But good luck building a business out of it. It's not going to be easy. So we were uh, definitely uh, challenged to raise Series A. The seed run was very easy. The seed run, basically, I had an idea and I had a good track record previously from founding Crowdstar. And people thought, okay, you know, the guy was an experience. It was a passion for this. Maybe he will figure it out. I'm sure he will figure it out. So here's the money. Series A, this is when you have to show some traction, some numbers, and this is when you actually have to have some kind of understanding of a business model. This is when it didn't resonate. And so that's why we ended up raising money from um, firms that really believed in um, some some form of this business working, um, and there weren't a lot of them, so we had a much smaller pool of people who believed in it. 
Um, and some of them ended up being, I wouldn't call them non-traditional, you know, they're not your mainstream uh, venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, which I'm actually really happy about because I had this uh, story where uh, one of the top VC firms, um, uh, I think it was Sequoia's uh, partner came over and I was very excited about uh, talking to somebody from Sequoia because I could talk about the mission of the company and how we're going to change kids' lives and how we're going to get access to lots of underprivileged kids. And turns out he doesn't care. That was to me a revelation. All this person cared about was, can this make money? And all this person told us, this is a terrible business, never going to make money. This is never going to be um, a big business. And didn't want to look at the product or even consider our projections or look at like our business model. So to me, it became clear that this is a complete mismatch with what we're trying to do as a mission-based company that actually has a purpose. And so that's why we ended up raising money from people who not just wanted to give us money, but also believed in what we were doing. I've heard from a couple of our investors that they don't care about returns. They just want us to succeed in our mission, and they'll be very proud uh, if we achieve you know, higher literacy rate or we get this in front of more kids. This is, this is their return. So that's actually great to see and hear from investors. You know, I'd have to say we're sort of in the middle of thinking about the fact that some of my investors might be listening to the podcast. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we've said this a lot. I've said this a lot in public that we as a fund believe very strongly that return is an effect, not a mm -hmm. cause. And we have never seen a company where the entrepreneur strutted in and said, I'm going to reboil the ocean and be a billionaire who became a billionaire. We have uh, gotten to know and work with uh, a number of uh early stage CEOs whose point of view is, I want to do something great. I'm committed to doing something great. And uh, and we as a fund believe, and I think this is one way where we're, because we're everywhere, all over the US, Asia, Europe, uh, a little different than Silicon Valley funds. Uh, we believe, we don't know. We don't know what the ultimate outcome is going to be. The entrepreneur doesn't know. It's not up mm -hmm. to us. It's up to all the people out there. and. Uh, so many variables. So we're looking for companies we believe have the capacity to uh, find a place in the market, have a CEO who we believe will keep looking until they find a place in the mm -hmm. market. And, uh, and then we'll let nature take its course. And that we've been surprised that companies we thought were the big winners foundered and companies we thought were great people and great ideas, but maybe not the biggest company took off. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the point. Uh, I think the investors around here, if, if the venture capitalist says about every company he or she puts money into, that's going to be a unicorn, then they're always right about predicting which of their companies are unicorns. And they forget that they predicted all of them would be unicorns. Uh, we just think it's, it's impossible. And, um, one reason we invested, I think we talked, is I'd been at Children's Television Workshop way back when, you know, when Big Bird was a little bird, uh, and saw this, saw something very similar in a different generation where mm -hmm. kids were showing up for school unprepared for the fundamentals. There must be a way to help. They're looking at TV. Therefore, if you could put something on TV that could help, and it did, though it didn't help underprivileged kids. Right. It helped right overprivileged kids get even more overprivileged, which is not what was it expected. And then, of course, it turned out also to be an incredibly valuable business. Mm -hmm. And we saw the potential for that here. 
Yeah, I have to say that timing is also really important. When we started this company, um, I think most internet companies, most media companies didn't really understand kids or care about serving kids well. Things have changed a lot in the last five years. I think what everybody now realizes is that kids are one third of the population of this planet and they're very important for serving families and for also capturing parents' trust. And uh, we are one of the very few companies who have figured out how to build tech products for children. A lot of the big media or big tech companies in Silicon Valley or elsewhere in the world don't know how to serve kids better. And there's plenty of uh, examples and plenty of bad PR that is going around about um, some companies that are not just not doing the right thing. Uh, we have built this unique uh, brand and um, product that serves kids in a very responsible and a very safe way. And that's what parents ultimately want because internet is not built for kids, just was never designed and built for kids, but we have built this product for kids. And so to me, this is just a matter of timing. It has started happening in the last three years. And um, you know, even today, these companies don't have the right DNA and we do. And uh, what I was, what I like to say is that what we're building now is way beyond the original idea of books. We're building a children's digital media brand a big brand that's built around serving kids in a responsible way, but also in a way that's fun for children and educational, and also um, that's designed for this new generation of children that are used to mobile devices, not big screen TVs anymore, not three hour long movies, but short form content, educational and fun. Got it. So given that, without necessarily giving away the uh, keys of the kingdom, so what might that mean next? That means um, better content, more variety of content, more interesting content, better targeting of uh, putting the right content in the hands of the right child. Uh, that means producing a lot more interesting regional content that we have insights into children's uh, interests and we can probably create a lot more interesting hits. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of opportunities. And one thing I am particularly excited about is uh, from the very beginning to me, uh, removing friction between a child and the book was important. So getting Epic in the hands of as many kids as possible, whether they are privileged, underprivileged, or somewhere else in the world, it doesn't really matter. It's just the mission is to get in front of as many kids as possible. It's wonderful. Uh, it's a wonderful goal, and you guys seem to be fulfilling it. We just got active in Europe. We're active in Asia. You have Asian investors, U.S. investors. Uh, world market at this point, all languages, any languages, cultural differences. Where are you in all of that? Yeah, absolutely. This is a long-term plan is to be a global, a global company. We are uh, focused on the U.S. primarily now just because a startup has to focus on uh, just a few things at a time, uh, given that resources of any small company are limited. And so we're focused on the U.S. now. We are uh, probably going to be expanding very soon into other markets. So what's the biggest thing you know today that you didn't know? on the day you started the company? I have to think about that one. A lot of things I didn't know. I mean, the whole experience of building a company, building a business is such a great ex learning experience. I think I've matured as a person. I've learned to uh, be a lot more respectful to children, to families. You know, coming from the background of gaming, we were not thinking much about what does a brand mean? What does being responsible mean? 
what does being nice to your users mean? You know, all we cared about is creating some quick entertainment and, and collecting the, the money. Um, building a long-term company, a long-term brand is very different. And uh, that means you have to be mindful to your team, to your people you're working with, and to your users. And you have to really respect everybody inside the company, outside of the company. So I've just learned to grow this company personally and have a lot of respect and also not just for people, but also respect different opinions, they respect differences that people have because they all matter. So uh, you're a game engineer, a game developer by background. And I'm curious to uh, hear how much you think what you learned in games helped here, how much the gamification, if you want to call it that, those sorts of cues and mm -hmm. nudges and understanding uh, 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 helped uh, in the creation of uh, the product in this company? Yeah, so I would like to say that my background is actually not just games. Uh, my last company was a gaming company, and before that I was not in gaming, and I had to learn on the fly. Um, I, I personally never played games. Computer games is not just something that I enjoy, uh, but I enjoy creating them. I just discovered that it's a very creative process. Uh, my background has been mostly just overall consumer internet. I like when I can uh, directly create a product that is directly appreciated by an end user. With the game specifically, what I learned is that um, not just gamification, but just creating something that reduces friction, that gets you to your goal a lot faster, uh, makes a huge, enormous difference. With games, we were testing different onboarding flows and learning how removing certain things and getting the user faster to a result uh, makes the experience a lot uh, easier and less painful. Um, and overall, just uh, uh, Crowster was a company that um, enjoyed very fast growth in a very short time frame, which I learned is not necessarily uh, applicable to every company. So I had that same expectation when I started Epic, but then I realized, you know, if you want to build a business that's going to be here for many years, that's here to stay, it doesn't have to explode overnight. It may take some time to get there, but if it takes you, you know, five years to get there, you will be so deeply embedded in the society and people's lives that it's really hard to fail at that point. A business that grow fast, they also, in many cases, crash very fast too. You know, that's probably as good a note as any to leave it on. Uh, uh, slow, steady, and... Uh, inexorable yeah. in a way of uh, uh, success that doesn't go away and uh, value that doesn't quit. Mm -hmm. we like it. Another thing I would say, uh, maybe it's related to my background, it's also related that at uh, my last company, Crossover, we're trying to create lots of different games is one thing that I personally am not afraid of is change. And whether it's a good change or bad change, it doesn't matter, but any change prompts some action and then it prompts you uh, to think about how to navigate that change and so that any change is good. And I've uh, was lucky enough, I've been growing up in multiple countries and moved around a lot, I've learned a lot of languages and it was uh, exposed to a lot of different cultures. And to me, uh, that uh, basically made me not be afraid of change. And to me, uh, starting a new company is fun. It's, it's in the challenge, it's not, uh, the change that I'm afraid of. And so same thing with building a company. You have to constantly make quick decisions here or have to make very painful decisions to um, you know, move the company from one direction to another overnight and confuse your, your entire team. But 
this is a change that at the end of the day is a good change, no matter what it feels like at the, in, in the beginning. I think, uh, as we talked about earlier, it is in the end all about change. Well done. Great to talk to you. Uh, always great to catch up. Keep on keeping on. You're doing wonderful work and creating uh, a lot of value in the process. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Mike. It was a pleasure to talk to you as well. Mm -hmm.